As usual with our special guests, we get a two-episode situation because they generally tend to run long. Here's our second half with Robert Anthony Navarro. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, we've touched on, on a similar mindset before where it's the end result. It's always the end result that matters. Sure. And we've talked from a production standpoint as well. It's like when we're talking about gear, mm-hmm. it's like people have a tendency to feel like, oh, your stock plugins, they're no good, right? And how, <laughs> you know, as long true. as you know your gear well enough, right? Nobody's ever said, you know, that snare would have been so much better if it had like an SSL emulation on it. It's the end result that matters. It's interesting to me where the psychology of that comes from. Because I have I have a feeling that it has to be a sort of, if not like inferiority complex, it has to be something related to that, where we have to have that control over everything just so we can essentially pat ourselves on the back and go, hey, look what I did. I, you know, um, there's another theory that I'm thinking of right now as Robert's been telling this. And Robert can attest to this. Back in the day, when you're talking the golden era of the library world, circa 2001, 2006, what was the average pay per a track at that point, upfront for production cost? Well, it's a weird question, and I'll tell you why. So I have to sort of backtrack a little bit before I answer the question mm-hmm. about how I got into library in the first place doing tracks, not my job at APM, but like how I actually became a library composer and how that this directly answers your question. So I was working for APM and we had a library called Dead Good. And uh, Dead Good was ran by two people at the time, you know, Gary and Peter, and we became friends. One day they happened to be passing my office at APM and they saw the CD sitting on the, the desk. For those of you kids, uh, a CD is something we used to play music on, and um, we buy them in the stores. <laughs> anyway, kind of um, like how you do it with vinyl now. Yeah, came, came after records. No, a- anyway, so um, basically, they saw my band CD and they said, "What is that?" And I said, "Oh, you want one? You know, here you go." And he listened to it and he said, "Oh, this is really cool. Do you want to do this exactly your band, but for our library? You know, would you want to do that?" And I said, "Sure, definitely. Yeah, that'd be great." So he goes, "Well, how much? What would you charge?" And I said, oh, I don't know. What do I know what it costs? And I just pulled a number completely from nowhere. I just said, a thousand a track. And he goes, okay, cool. And that's, that was it. And it established this number, a thousand a track. Now, not every library pays you a thousand a track, but at the time, that became kind of a thing. And I don't even know where I got that number from, but it just, okay. So 10, 12 tracks, you know, you're going to get 10 to $12,000 an album. That's, that's pretty good. Plus, the other royalty stream. So at one point, I would see anywhere from 500 to 1,000 a track was about standard of what I was finding, at least what I was making back in the day. Sometimes you got lucky and the budgets were better and they had a whole separate vocal stipend and whatever they could be. And oftentimes it's like very, very different. And now today, it's a different story altogether. The deals that you can find out there that libraries are willing to pay is vastly different because there's so much competition and a lot of people out there that are either really good that you're competing with or people that are not that great, but the library just doesn't want to pay, you know, what they used to. So what you're able, you'll find that the deals that are floating around are not great anymore. As a library owner, I own my own library, by the way, it's called Pop Machine. 
And I've owned other libraries in the past. I was a co-owner in a catalog with a partner of mine named Takeshi Furukawa. It's called Noise Refinery. I started a lot of other labels for people. For Pop Machine, a deal that I've thought long and hard about because I am, before anything, I'm a songwriter, I'm a composer. You know, I've been on that side of the fence. So I don't want to be, if anybody, I want to be the one guy that's not going to screw you, you know, basically. You know, I want to be a person that's known to be fair. And if anywhere else, you know, you're at least going to get a, a decent deal. And this is why, you know. I so, can attest to um, this. I can yeah, attest yeah. to this fact. Your kindness extends well beyond the concept of fair business, too. There was a point in time when I was unceremoniously booted out of my house. And Robert was kind enough to take me in. And I had just put a bunch of stuff in storage. I left one particular box out on the curb for a very specific reason. And I didn't think that Robert would see this and bring it into his house. But he did. And he didn't do it out of any kind of reasoning other than he thought, oh, shit, Jody left something on the curb. I should bring it in. And the reason I left that box out there was because it had been infected with termites. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when Robert found this out, we were both kind of freaking out, but we realized that we didn't end up unleashing an army of termites into his house. But that's how kind Robert is. He saw something that was left out on the street as trash, knew it was mine because it had my name and stuff on it and brought it in to his own house. That's like an attestment to your kindness and fairness in this world. <laughs> well, thank you, sir. <laughs> I mean, we've all had terrible dealings. I probably one of the most horrific memories that I can pull out I was once acquainted with some people that were pitching a deal that sounded good at face value. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to go into who these people are, whatever, it doesn't matter. But they had pitched this idea and they had a lot of connections and they could get, you know, music placed possibly and in, into different opportunities. So they said, hey, when, when a certain pitch comes through, you're going to submit something and then this company will... We can't guarantee that your track's going to be taken. You know, it might be yours, might be ours, might be somebody else's. But if you want to be in this, if you get the gig, then you get the lion's share. We'll actually give you the lion's share of whatever the money will come. We'll just take a small little portion. I said, well, that sounds good. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's not what they were doing. What I found out that they were actually doing is they would get all these submissions from a lot of their friends, quote unquote. And when the company came back and said, I love this, they would knock off their friend's piece and submit their own. Oh, and that's, that's horrible. Yeah. That's, that's bad karma. Yeah. Yeah, that's and you, terrible. And, and it was amazing that no one's pieces ever got taken but theirs. You know, it's well, amazing. You know, and, yeah. And, and I, and I discovered. And friends didn't realize this and sue the no, shit out of them? No, no one picked up on it. And me wow. and my two co-writers did. And we approached these people and said, what the hell? You know, like, like I, I don't get it. And they said, look, man, you're just paying your dues. We've all oh, been there. <laughs> that's awful. That, yeah, yeah that's brutal. That yeah. is absolutely yeah. brutal. I, I, I never want to be that guy. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe let, let's lighten this up a little bit and maybe <laughs> yeah, start talking. So uh, on the gear side, we, we've said now that, or I said, that the gear necessarily doesn't matter. But that's not entirely true. You spoke about recording quality, obviously, where it needs to be and to a certain level. And I would probably 
say, at least appropriate. Let's say that you have this horrible sounding drum kit that you recorded in your living room. Right? That might be appropriate for a a punk track or whatever, if that's the aesthetic that's going for. But what's your feeling on if you're doing a certain level of orchestral music, in cues and say trailers and things like that? Obviously, instruments or sample libraries have to be to a certain standard, but how much do you think that influences the placement, let's say, or if it actually makes it into a library, if you feel like this would have been really good, but if they only had the top of the line sample structure, is it more your orchestration abilities and that kind of thing? No, I absolutely think it matters what the quality is of your gear. I'm right now, I was given a track to listen to and it was, hey, what do you think of this? Is this, you know, any feedback, whatever. I could tell you right out of the gate, I would never accept this track. Yeah. It never would go into my library. That's because um, of his anal nature. <laughs> True. <laughs> no, but the drums don't sound real. Uh-huh. And it is not, uh, okay, if a track is supposed to be synthetic, it's supposed to be an electronic track, it's a Nine Inch Nails thing, obviously it doesn't have to sound like real drums because it's not supposed to sound like real drums. You're going after an electronic sound. But if you're doing a jazz track or you know a rock track where it's supposed to be a drum kit, and it's a terrible sample drum kit. It just sounds awful. You know, the hi-hats sound ridiculous. Yeah. Know? It's not coming across convincing. It doesn't sound like a real bass. It sounds like somebody took Trillium is cool. You know, I've, I've used it a million times, you know, for... I pretty much only use Trillium for the upright bass, you know, when I want to do, hmm. you know, upright jazz yeah. bass. I play bass, but I don't have an upright bass. And... And just to quickly I, note, just for people out there that may not know, Trillium is a plugin by Spectrosonics yeah, yeah, that is yeah. geared towards creating what are supposed to be realistic bass sounds. Yeah, and it's served me well for many years. Trillium's a great software. I use it for their upright bass sound. is amazing to me. If you know how to tweak it and you know what to do with it and put it in your mix, it's, it's great. You know, there's a couple of other basses in there too that I use. But... I play bass, you know, so yeah. I probably would just play a real bass. You know, I would probably play a real guitar and I don't have access to a real Bosendorfer piano, you know, so <laughs> if I had a great, you know, sampled piano, there's no nothing wrong with using that, whatever, but I think it's the quality of the samples that we're talking about. There's just many, many times that people submit tracks that could have been so good. The writing was there, but the production wasn't, you know, it yeah. fell short with the production. And then sometimes they might even have decent sounds, but they just don't know how to use their gear properly. I've had tracks where people submit these drum tracks, you know, that are part of a, a rock song. But uh, unless the guy's an octopus, you know, he can't constantly have the, uh, you know, the, the, the hi-hat going, you know, nonstop throughout the whole song. It's like, learn learn what a real drummer would play, yeah. you know. And, yeah. uh, you know, at some point you got to stop playing that hi-hat to do a fill or whatever you're doing, you <laughs> right. know. Yeah, there's six you know? no hi-hat fill going on, and yeah. there's Tom Rolls at the same yeah. time, and, right? And, yeah. and by the way, where you guys are talking a discussion that got handed down to me, slapped in the face like a school kid by a master, like Zen master of, of programming, Jeff Scott Soto. Because <laughs> I was programming shit, much to the chagrin of like what Robert is talking right now, where you have something constantly going. And it's like, human can't possibly play that. And I'm like, well, I don't care, but it does matter when you're trying to make something sound realistic. By the way, it's not just the rank amateur that's going to make these mistakes. Mozart himself wrote Alberti bass lines 
that could never be performed on a harp. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, as my professor pointed out to me once, you know, you should know what you're doing. You know, how if you're doing orchestral music, know the range of your instrument. Yeah. You know, if you're going to be just because your keyboard can play those notes doesn't mean a real <laughs> orchestra can. You know, it's just <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, the MIDI invest. keyboard goes down to C zero, but the viola doesn't. Right? You know? Yeah. So, Get grab the Samuel Adder study of orchestration if that's what you're going to do. Know your you limitations. I had one more thing that I, I would like to go into as well. It's like, do it. Compared to air quotes here, regular songwriting, there are obviously very strong trends when it comes to that. Do you find that in production music, those trends change more rapidly? Or do you find that in your experience that there's always a need for a certain type of track? Well, I would say both. So we call, as music directors, we call a track an evergreen. You mm -hmm. know, it's, an al it's a track or an album that will never go out of style. You know, it's always going to be there. You take a very HGTV-friendly, very simple pop rock tracks that just, you know, establish a groove and have a feel-good vibe to it. That music is never going to go out of style. There's always going to be a need for it. Right. You know, whereas... This is, by the way, my second stint at APM because I was there from 2001 to 2006, and then I had a 14-year hiatus, you know, doing a lot of other things, and then I came back two years ago, so I'm, yeah. I'm back again. I, I thought this was hysterical that when I was there before, there they had a Lombada album because at some <laughs> point Lombada was, you know, ruling the world, and th that didn't last, you know. But it's like, you know, that was a flavor of the week kind of style. You know, there are always going to be clients that want to reflect what's happening on the radio, what's sure. happening in commercial music, and they want the latest and the greatest, but then there's also going to be certain styles that just never go out. Yeah. All right. Yeah, no, I think that's interesting because it, and I think that happens to, well, whatever field that you're in, that there's always a need for like the latest and greatest where you might be able to for want of a better phrase, but cash in on, on a quick buck type of thing by doing that. But but when something gets really big really quickly when it comes to musical styles, maybe it burns out faster too because it gets so oversaturated that it doesn't have the longevity, but then you might have to wait 15 more years before that kind of stuff comes around. I'm not sure if... Um, I'm on dubstep. <laughs> right. Oops. Was that out loud? Yeah. No, but that, but that's a good, you know, that, that's a good example, that? right? <laughs> Where I think that does happen, and and as you mentioned, like let's say you have that feel good. Hallmark kind of TV show where it's like it's an acoustic guitar and a simple beat. That that that's it might not be cutting edge, but it's always going to have legs, right? Because it's always going to be in outlet for that so if you're that guy or girl who writes that kind of stuff maybe try not to go for the super modern trip hop track and just stick with what it is that you do well for sure i mean i've had composers that i've i know they do something really well they could pull this off in their sleep and i say hey can you do something like this and they go oh but it's so boring Okay. Well, but I mean, are you doing this because you're trying to leave your mark on the earth, you know, before you die, or are you trying to make money? You know, if you, yeah. if your goal is you want to make money, which is why that was the original part of the conversation. Can I make any money in this business? You know, right. yeah, you can. Okay, how do I do it? And then I tell them, and they they don't want to do what I'm telling them to do. <laughs> it it's takes just, work. It's like a job. Well, I mean, the thing is that look, I'm not a heavy-handed producer. I definitely know what I'm looking for. 
but I try to give all the composers a good amount of latitude to you know express what they're trying to get across and whatever. But from time to time, I have suggestions and I have you know notes, you know whatever they are, and I'm not guru on the mountain that just not Nostradamus. I don't know with absolute 100% guarantee that what I'm telling you is going to translate to some huge windfall of, you know, earnings. But my experience and knowing my clients well has told me that when certain things occur to me, you should do it. And I have a mutual friend of me and uh, I believe he's a friend of yours too, Jody Gooding, you know, my friend yep. uh, who's a indie rock musician. He was working on a track of music for me when I was uh, working for Universal doing a catalog called Burn. And he had a track of music and there was nothing wrong with it. By all account, nothing wrong with the track. It was great. Drove along, did what it needed to do. And then I noticed this place in the middle that I said, you know, you should add this to the track. It's just a very simple addition. It could be, it wasn't like a modified everything he already done. It was literally just adding a line to the track that wasn't there before. And he said, really? I mean, I really like it as it is. And I said, well, look, it's up to you. It's not going to kill the track, but I, my gut tells me you should do that. Mm. And he did. And it translated to a lot of licenses for him. <laughs> you know, yeah. that, that one thing. Now, did I know that? You know, no. There's been plenty of times that tracks that I thought were going to do really well didn't do what I thought they were going to do. Tracks that I had no thought that were going to do anything ended up being amazing. You can always be surprised by what your efforts are going to produce. But by and large, I would say that the majority of the things that I tell composers are definitely helpful and they, they work. And I have sort of an unfair advantage because I'm inside at APM. I know what clients ask me for when I do music searches. I know what I've done in the past that's translated to more earnings. I mean, you asked me earlier in the conversation, how do you put together tracks? You know, what is the format? I don't know that there's any particular format per se. Everything's different. I remember when I first got Logic, you know, I dove into Logic, Logic 6, you know, that's the, when I started with Logic. And I remember I spent all this time, I was so proud, I created the coolest template and I had the icons and it was all, <laughs> oh, yeah. you know, I had, I had, and, and, and they were color coded and it was, it was this yeah. beautiful yeah. thing. And my friend that was teaching me Logic, he came over and said, what the hell is this? <laughs> you know, <clears throat> you're never going to use this. This is ridiculous. You know, it's so limiting. What if you wanted other things? What? And I said, well, I'll just create more tracks. He said, but you've already got like, you've already got 16 tracks now. You know, what do you, what do you mean you're going to create more? Well, my logic template now has one, it, it starts out with one audio track. That's yeah. all I have, you know, because I don't know what I'm going to do. Yeah. I just think that there's that side of the coin, what you have to do. But when you're talking about, these little subtle things that will influence how your tracks are going to go. I think that. And now a word from our sponsors. You know. Yeah. But you're I think also, the, the, I'll say this for as strong willed as Robert can be and knowing what he knows and what he's looking for when it's coming to others. There are times when he's doing music himself and he's open to the possibilities of having to change things. A case in point was when you called me up about a song called He's Not That Into You. Right. Right at the time when that movie was a big to-do and the book was a big to-do and he invited me over to listen to the track. I listened to it and I said, you can't use this. He's like, well, why not? <laughs> and the answer was, do you remember the How answer? How dare you? <laughs> well, do you remember the answer? 
Yeah, it, you said, well, you're you're basically ripping off Taylor Swift. No, it was, <laughs> and said, it was actually Avril Lavigne. Or Avril Lavigne. And her right. song, Complicated. The melody was right. like note for note. Right. So we changed it. So we had to change it, yeah. yeah, instantly. And that was, and this is another funny, quick diversion. So the library world is very different now than it was when I started. Things that flew back then do not fly today at all. And the blurred lines situation and whatever, it's almost scary to be a, a composer now. Are you talking compositionally now? Right? Yeah, like because of copyright yeah. infringement. Yeah. And people, the idea that somebody could copyright or, or not even copyright something, but but that's that you could say you were influenced by somebody's album, and maybe the album has nothing, like not even one interval that is the same as any anything in something. But but now you've because of your admission of influence, you know somehow your your work is an infringement on somebody else's work. It's just I very rarely do style alikes mm-hmm. because it's just too scary. Yeah, you know somebody in the world can possibly like I, I. There's a musicologist that I work with when I really need to know, for sure. And I've sent him tracks that I would swear up and down and all around. You know, there's no way in the world uh, this is an infringement on any copyright. And he'll come back to me and say, "Well, the bass line is a second inversion of." blah 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 thing and oh, and, 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 it, and, it, and I go what you know who who's what are you who are you you know what are you talking about you know and um, okay do I want a chance twenty thousand dollar copyright infringement right. something happening and, no, no. You know, you know, no or more you know whatever that is so right. I'm, I'm well very, and the uh, other interesting thing about that song of they're not that into you which I think was the eventual title because I don't think we stuck with the he's not that into you. I think we just call it not that into you. Yeah, not that into you. That track still, to this day, gets a lot of licenses. And it was like licensed, what, like used a thousand times before it was even hard released? Yeah, it was. It was, it was insane. Well, yeah. People ask me questions. Okay, so if I take a track of music and I put it into the library world, how, you know, how's it going to do? And how much life does it have? And I used to say that an average track of mine had anywhere from eight to 12 years of use. And it doesn't mean that after 12 years, it's dead and you're never going to see any other use, but it's just, it's not as frequent. You know, there's so much content being released all the time that you just never know. Uh, you ought to be pumping out more and more stuff all the time to, to keep up, you know, basically. But I was surprised because someone said, well, when am I going to see return on my investment of time? And I said, well, Six months to a year is a good amount of time, you know, before you start to see your track making money for you and you're going to be doing things. And as Jody pointed out, that particular track, uh, within the first three months of release, it had over a thousand confirmed licenses. And it was like, whoa, you know, that's different. It was abnormal to say the least from what I understood. And that was my first foray into a library track. Yeah. Because this is easy. I can do this all the time. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So All right. it was very different. Well, you never know. And I realized that uh, we, we jumped, you asked a very direct question and somehow we completely jumped over it and never uh, gave you a response. A lot of people want orchestral tracks that sound like real orchestra. Right. And if your samples aren't you know good Not enough, you're, right. you're competing against people that are using live orchestra or have sampled live orchestras. And if it doesn't you know work, it doesn't work. If your articulations sound false, my good friend and previous partner in a music library, Takeshi Furukawa, he can program orchestral music 
that uh, sounds like the real thing. I mean, it's amazing what he can do with a sampled orchestra. And there's plenty of people that can. My, my, another friend of mine, David Edwards, very successful trailer composer, they use you know a variety of things at their fingertips, but your stuff has to sound good. You can't get away with stuff that's going to be subpar. Right. Know your niche. That validates everything, I think, though, because it's like, yeah, you need to be able to use what you have. What you're using as well has to be at a certain level. Right. Yeah. So it's, I mean, we see all the time, it seems like almost weekly, there's new orchestral libraries that come out and like Spitfire cranking them out or Native Instruments or whoever. But it fills a new niche all the time, I think, when it comes to specifically like articulations and all this kind of stuff. So just buying the library is not good enough. You need to be able to use it so that whether the bowing and the articulation is, is right and how would a real player or a real orchestra, how would they use the expression and dynamics and all this kind of stuff? So, oh, yeah, but yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean that everything that I do has to be, you know, I don't always mic an amp, you know, I don't always no, no, do no. that. I mean, I... I'm <clears> making <throat> just blanket <clears throat> statements here, right? Right, so it's not right. I, I'm just saying, I mean, like one of, one of my favorite pieces of gear now that I use all the time, you know, is my Kemper. You yeah. know, I, I mean, I just, I love that thing to death. It's definitely a lot more convenient than having to, you know, dial in the, the tone on my amps, you know, and, and whatever. So it's not to say that every single thing I do has to be the real thing, you know. Right. Has to be, I, I think yes, one does. thing that we like to say uh, <laughs> on the podcast is like it, or at least I like to say anyway, is there's not necessarily a right or wrong always, but it is, or better or worse, but it is, there's something that is appropriate for what it is that we're doing. And I think that's sort of like the, the takeaway that we can always kind of think about whatever, what is appropriate for the track. Sure. Yeah. 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 So anything that you would like to add, Jody? I could just keep rattling off stories about Rob Root, but that would start to get boring, wouldn't it? Possibly. <laughs> possibly. Yeah. So before we ask the last couple of questions, I, I just like on a personal note, I did some work with Robert in the not too distant past. And I can say that for me, it was a tremendous learning experience. Mm -hmm. And it was one of my first forays into sort of like production music. And it was it, it was like going to school, right? So was it like a strong thank sense you for of... that? <laughs> no, I, I mean, it was, I really enjoyed the process. I learned a ton about it. So thank you, Robert, for, for that. I my appreciate pleasure. it. Yeah. <clears throat> so should we move into the last three questions here, Jody? Wait, you real, real fast before you do, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say one quick thing. I, I have a mission on, in, in this podcast. Oh, um, what is this mission? Yes. Dun, okay, so dun, thank dun, you for being here. This is the thing. And, and again, you know, it, it almost sounds funny, like like I'm, you know, some, like anyone cares what, I, what I'm saying, you know, whatever. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm hoping some of this I information can. is, is uh, useful, whatever. But, you know, I, I, I'm not full of myself that I think that I have all the answers by any stretch of the imagination. But one thing I will say is that vocalists, Melodyne, Autotune, do not cling to these things uh, and, and love them and, and believe that they are the way to go. Learn how to sing, okay? Uh, I <laughs> this had, is the mission? I, I, yes, this is the, this is the mission. I, I had, this blew my mind. I had a, a session a few years back where a vocalist that had been recommended to me came into my studio to sing. And, you know, she was good, at least what I heard in the recordings prior to, you know, having her come there, you know, she sounded great. She came into the studio and we're recording 
And the song was just out of her range. It was just mm-hmm. the, the top note was just, she was just flat on that top note. She couldn't quite get there. And I tried and tried and tried and it wasn't happening. And it was just, it was so painful because some of the stuff we were doing were right around that place where it just wasn't happening. So I had to stop and she came into the control room to listen. And I said, you know, trying to figure out what we can do. And she goes, oh, it's not a problem. And I go, oh, it's not? And she goes, no, no, no you just fix it. <laughs> and, I, and I said, well, how, how should I do that exactly? And she uh-huh. goes, well, come on. Any engineer half assault can, you know, auto-tune me and I sound great. And I said, well, uh, any singer half her salt could sing the note, <laughs> you know, so, oh, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, uh, so it's like, no, auto-tune, Melodyne, amazing tools for fixing small things. But if you can't do something, you know, don't, don't use that as a crutch, you know, for something you're not capable of doing, you know, spend some time, work on your voice, do whatever you need to do. I found that appalling, you know, that the whole thing, and, and I think that she went on to tell me that people fix my voice all the time. I don't sound like that normally. And I said, don't ever tell anyone that. Yeah. <laughs> don't, right. don't, don't admit yeah. to that. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, I mean, a part of, of the times that we're living in, where we have all these amazing tools at our disposal, it is very easy to think that, well, because a lot of the tools are designed to do a job of correcting stuff that has either hasn't been captured in the right way mm-hmm. or hasn't been performed in the right way. So I think part of it can be like we're just too reliant on this and we go instead of fixing in the mix type of thing. It's like, no, just, just fix it, you know, before you prep your file type of thing. And I think that is a mistake where it's like, no, just do another take and nail that timing because the time it's going to take you to record that guitar line again and doing it right is probably a lot less than it is for the poor engineer who's going to sit there and try to fix that and make it sound natural. Sure, so, sure. so just just do the whole thing again. Damn right. There we go. Yeah. Now I'm going to go outside on my lawn and yell at the clouds. Do it. <laughs> do it, old, old man. man. Do it. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so here we go. Here's another thing, though, that is a little bit interesting that Robert probably doesn't know, is that Robert and I went to MI. There's nothing Robert doesn't know. Well, that's right. He is rather <laughs> omnipotent. Right. <laughs> um, Robert and I attended MI at the same time, as did I, Jerry was in our class. I didn't realize yeah. he was in our class. Um, he was. Chris also attended Overlap while we were there, in case you didn't know. Well, <laughs> I, 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 I knew you went there, but I didn't know there was an Overlap. That's funny. 91, 92. Whoa. Yeah, and we were 92, 93, right? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. So No, yeah. wait. No, no. Yeah. I, I think we were 91, 92. We graduated in 92, so it would have been yeah. 91, 92. Yeah, so started was, in 91 and ended in 92. Where did you start, Chris? March 91. Okay. So he was already six months in when we started, because I think we started fall. Got it. Small world, yeah. It is. It is a small world. But we didn't know you because you were a Swede. (laughs) No, well, well, that's I I remember um, like about- Remember what I said about networking before? Yes, I did. (laughs) (laughs) Like three weeks into MI, I remember turning to my friend and saying- what is this land, Sweden, full of shredding guitarists and hot girls? <laughs> you know, all the women are hot, and the guys can play guitar better than me. <laughs> what is this country? <laughs> and then we go and hang out with the guy that wears the jellyfish hat. <laughs> yes, Thomas. Thomas. All right. So we got to wrap this up because Robert's got to go. So the first thing that I'm going to do: favorite piece of gear that you can't live without. I think you're going to answer what you just kind of mentioned before. But what's your favorite piece of gear? My thrifty ice cream scoop. <laughs> he goes off the board. Okay. All right. 
Uh, Joe, do you want to do the next one? Biggest lesson you've learned. Biggest lesson I've learned. He kind of already mentioned it, right? Kind of at the top of the first episode here. Well, I mean, I don't want to get all like serious and no, whatever. No, get, but, get serious. Yeah, but, it's all uh, good. And by the way, no, my, my thrifty ice cream scoop is not my favorite piece of gear. I was, <laughs> so he's going to answer that <laughs> uh, now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll say, uh, although it is pretty amazing, I would probably say, I don't know, my Kemper is probably, you know, my favorite piece of gear. Yeah. Lesson, never let a moment lie upon the shelf, for in that moment you may find all of life itself. Ooh, how My poetic. father said that. That was deep. Basically, I've had, you know, a lot of amazing things happen in my life. I've been blessed, you know, in a lot of ways. But I've also been through a lot of very, very tragic things uh, for uh, someone my age. And I've realized that you don't always get an opportunity to fix things or, you know, go back and people that you wish you would have said something to, you know, and, and they die and they're gone, you know, and you wish you, you could have told them everything you wanted to tell them in five minutes and you never took the time to do it. You're in a, a place and you see somebody walk by that you want to talk to and you're afraid, what are they going to say? You know, whatever. My lesson is don't, don't be afraid of your, don't let your fear stop you. Don't, um, don't miss opportunities that happen every day. You pick up the phone and call people that you care about and just tell them, Hey, you know, I, just thinking of you, you know, I just want to say hi, you know, whatever it is. I just think that, you know, missing opportunities that are granted to you, I think, is uh, something you should never let happen. That's it. Very cool. And I think you answered the third question there with that statement as well, because the, the last question would be, what's the piece of advice that you universally give? But I guess that would pretty much be it, right? Uh, He's never given that to me before, so I'm not going to say yes. Best advice? I mean, I didn't write this, but figure out what you do well and figure out how to charge people money <laughs> to get at it. And what, what, is it, what does the Joker say at Heath Ledger? If you do something well, don't ever do it for free, <laughs> something like that. Uh -huh. But, you know, just figure out, do what you love and uh, you'll figure out a way to make money doing it. You know, I remember being a kid in school and I was kind of like a I, I wouldn't say I was the class clown, but I definitely, you know, talked a lot more than my teachers wanted me to in class. <laughs> and I remember one professor, it wasn't even a professor, it was a teacher in the sixth grade said, Navarro, pay attention. One day, this is all going to be important. And we were learning, you know, like algebra or something. You know, you're going to have to pay attention because one day you're going to have to get a real job. <laughs> and you're going to have to get up early in the morning and go into work and wear a suit. And you're going to have to be somebody. And I said, no, I won't. <laughs> and he said, yes, you will. No, I won't. And I said, no, I, I don't want to get up early in the morning. I want to be, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a musician. <laughs> you <laughs> and, knew uh, it back then in you know, sixth grade? Damn, that's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But all kidding aside, I think it's, you know, just do it because you love doing it. You know, I mean, if, if you don't love what you're doing, you're going to get sick of it. You know, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you that right now. Yeah. So. Cool. I think we have to let Robert go here, buddy. So all thank right. you so much for all the time that you've given us here. And thanks for doing this. Really, really appreciate it. Well, guys, it's been a pleasure. We can, we should do this again sometime. <laughs> I'll take you up on that. Yeah. <laughs> Next all time right. I get to LA. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Take care. All right. And now we're up for our Friday finds. Chris, what have you got for us? How many... SSL emulations do you need? 72. The correct answer is whatever you have and then one more. Because <laughs> <laughs> this 
Friday, I'm going to pick the uh, new Waves SSL EV2 Ooh. that has been boosted up. So that's a new plugin from Waves. So check it out. It's supposed to be better, better at analog emulation, all that kind of stuff. So that's my find this week. What about you, Jody? I'm going to run with a brand new plugin that has come out from Eventide. It is called the Split EQ. Mm. And yeah. it is so ridiculous that the first time I started messing around with it, I started laughing. And the first three words that came out of my mouth, actually, I guess it's four, might be five. Let me count that out. This is fucking cool. <laughs> that was the first <laughs> phrase that came out of my mouth. And of course, Eventide can't use a phrase like that, but we can. And so yeah. I have to say the Eventide split EQ because it is ridiculously cool what this EQ can do when you need to separate tracks from one another in a mix. Very cool. Yes. Very cool. And while we've got your attention, we ask that you post about us on your favorite forum. Go to our website and leave us a review at InsideTheRecordingStudio.com forward slash review, or just go to InsideTheRecordingStudio.com and sign up for our email list. Doing so will get you weekly reminders about tips that come out every Tuesday, and we'll make sure that you don't miss any future episodes of the podcast. In addition to that, when you're on the email list, you're automatically entered into our giveaway whenever we're doing a giveaway. And you can win something cool. If you send us an email at goldstar, G-O-L-D-S-T-A-R, at InsideTheRecordingStudio.com with the phrase production music, you'll get something cool back in your inbox. And if you have a topic of suggestion for us to explain in a future episode, contact us and we'll put it into consideration for a future episode on the podcast. And with that, I'll say thank you, Robert, and see you next week, Chris. Have a good one, Jody.